Friends, I have a confession to make. I, John Nelson, film nerd extraordinaire, saw the sequel to Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey before I ever saw 2001 A Space Odyssey. That's right, my boomer parents who saw 2001 in the theater when it opened in 1968 and had their minds blown, let me watch the sequel on HBO on our 20-inch TV in glorious 4x3 pan and scan with every scratch and cigarette burn preserved for historical accuracy. They allowed me to get all the answers to all the rhetorical hippie acid trip questions that nobody asked for, so that when I finally watched 2001, all I could think was, wait, so is this guy going to say, my God, it's full of stars? Fortunately, after decades of having not watched the sequel in many, many rewatchings of Kubrick's masterpiece, I'm happy to say I've burned the original into my brain and completely wiped clean any traces of its progeny. So let's undo all that hard work. Let's head back to Jupiter for 2010, the year we make contact. Welcome to the holdup. Each month, we pick a movie one of us remembers fondly but hasn't seen in years. We watch it and we decide, does it hold up? I'm John Longino. And I'm John Nelson. And welcome, everyone, to our 2021 April episode. No tomfoolery or trickery this year, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, no fools are you. We are just here to uh, watch some fun movies and discuss. Although I'm sure there's many of you who are saying to yourselves, oh, I saw 2010, the year we make contact, and I assume this was an April Fool's joke. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're actually doing it. But before we continue our odyssey, uh, we are going to take some emails Mr. Nelson. Oh, my God. We got some emails at holduppodcast at gmail.com. Our first one comes from Robin. Robin writes, are you fellas okay? Do you need an intervention? <laughs> if the new catch-up podcast covering an assassin violently avenging a dead dog is the lightest material you've discussed in a while, <laughs> then it might be time to consider a bit of a palate cleanser. Might I suggest something from the Disney collection? Sure, the Hunchback of Notre Dame plot is pretty messed up, but at least it's a musical. Anyway, I'm enjoying the catch-up and look forward to more episodes. Sincerely, Robin. Well, thank you, Robin. Perhaps a uh, a summertime selection. I think we, we have some ideas of the, the next couple of episodes, but a Disney film is actually a, a, a good suggestion. We haven't done one in a while, so maybe that's something we do this summer, John? I'm, I'm we'll ready. You know we'll me. Put a pin in it, Robin. We'll see. <laughs> uh, Nelson, I believe we have yet another email. I know. Two. Two emails. Two whole emails. This one comes from Jeremy Bear, who y'all remember. He was in that uh, catch-up podcast. The uh, co-host of the Freshman 15, Jeremy Bear, writes us with the most amazing subject line we've gotten uh, in a while, a hard-on to get my bard on. <laughs> <laughs> fellas i'm always a teensy bit nervous when you two take on a film that holds a special place in my heart so i was enthused but wary when i clicked to hear your take on baz's romeo and juliet by the end of longino's fantastic intro some time clearly went into crafting that one i knew i was in good hands the film is one of my favorites and at the time i was obsessed i probably went overboard i had the soundtrack both volumes memorabilia from the film the design for windows 95 cd rom that took you on a virtual tour of baz lerman's verona beach wow jeez even today john leguizamo pete pulsawaite miriam margolis claire danes 
Even Leo himself will always be, quote, that actor from Romeo and Juliet, unquote. All that's to say, great fun. Thanks for covering it. We were inspired to show it to our teenage daughters as a result, their first ever exposure to Shakespeare, and they were riveted. Well, that's good. That, we, that's see? fantastic. The holdup is doing the Lord's work. We're educating the children. Uh, question. You touched on it a little, but Shakespeare is always tricky to adapt in film. Uh, from Derek Jacoby to 10 Things I Hate About You, just about every take has been tried. So what are your favorite on-screen versions of The Bard? All's fair game. I've taken shit for liking Mel Gibson's Hamlet more than Kenneth Branagh's. So what do I know? Nice one, guys. <laughs> Jeremy Bear. Uh, just a quick aside. I also own those soundtracks to Romeo and Juliet. So I, I, I didn't have the CD-ROM tour, unfortunately. But I was I was up there with you, Jeremy, in terms of love for that movie. With those tiny little two-inch quick times. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Nelson, what do you think of his question about uh, other Shakespeare films that we like? Uh, well, I have many that I could name, but I, I thought it might be fair to name check some films that are like based on Shakespeare but aren't actually Shakespeare quote unquote that makes sense I mean he mentioned 10 things I hate yeah. about you which well, is exactly. obviously inspired by more so than like a direct adaptation of so. yeah well because well there's a million like Romeo and Juliet ripoffs West Side sure. Story probably being the mo most notable um, then there's Hamlet which has a few of its own the Lion King is a big one uh, also the Mackenzie Brothers Strange Brew is a Hamlet uh, rip off down to them drinking Elsinore beer and the murder of a king and all this other stuff or the murder of an owner of a beer factory whichever I, it goes um, wow. another one that I like that's not exactly Shakespeare but it's Shakespeare adjacent Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead have sure. you ever seen that one I like oh, that oh yes I've seen that movie that's, that's a fun movie uh, also My Own Private Idaho which is Gus Van Sant's one of his early works and uh, Keanu Reeves and River Phoenix are in it playing like these homeless street boys. And at some point, I didn't notice when, but they started busting into Henry the Fourth or Henry the Fifth or something like that. And oh, I was wow. like, wait a second, when did they start talking Shakespeare? Because as far as I could tell, there was a whole other thing going on. But I was very impressed by that when, when I saw that in the theater. And I, I would really like to revisit that one, honestly. I mean, there, there's so many to choose from, and you just listed off a ton of them, uh, which I agree with. Those are all really good. I think to I'll answer the question is like, what's my favorite uh, actual literal uh, adaption of Shakespeare in terms of like word for word Shakespeare? Right. And then uh, maybe what's my favorite sort of inspired by one? Uh, I, I think my favorite actual just Shakespeare movie movie is probably well besides <laughs> since we've already watched Romeo and Juliet which I adored I'd say runner-up is Richard the third the um the um Ian McKellen yeah uh, one that was a great one quite good and then in terms of uh, you've already mentioned it but I think my favorite sort of inspired by is uh West Side Story like I, mm. I that's actually probably my favorite musical or one of and definitely my favorite musical film Right. Pretty much ever. I mean, not to, <laughs> not to be like stereotypical, but I, I love West Side Story. I think that's fabulous. So I, I guess I have a soft spot for Romeo and Juliet. I don't know what it is. Makes sense. It's just great drama. So far as uh, actual Shakespeare movies, I <laughs> I was so taken by this question. I actually rewatched a few of them just to make sure I was going to give a good answer. I rewatched um, Macbeth, Roman Polanski's Macbeth, the bloodiest Shakespeare ever put to film. 
Because for those of you who don't know, he filmed it in the wake of Sharon Tate being butchered by the Manson family. Uh, and he was a he little was working out some problems. I think uh, there's even a point in Macbeth. I mean, spoiler for anybody who's never seen or heard Macbeth, but at the end he gets killed. They parade his head around on a pike. And for a, a, a split second, you see from the head's perspective, everybody going. Nah! <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's real good, real violent. And of course, I love the Branagh adaptations. I love Henry V and I, I liked Hamlet. I, you know, I, I thought it was a little bloated, to be honest. But I also really like um, Much Ado About Nothing which has sure. like everybody it's, I forget all the people where it's like Keanu Reeves and Denzel Washington oh, yeah. and Emma Thompson of course anyway so there you go lots of Shakespeare to choose from tell your daughters but speaking of Shakespeare <laughs> yes uh, Arthur C. Clarke wrote some science fiction uh, books <laughs> uh, good and they were uh, made into some movies so uh, <laughs> good uh, segue there Mr. Nelson, I'm, I'm actually very surprised you're bringing 2001 A Space Odyssey this month. I mean, it's pretty much generally considered one of the greatest movies sure. ever. Sure, 2001 is considered uh, yeah. a, a, why, great, a do, great movie. Why do but we have I'm, to check 2001? I'm bringing understand. 2010, The Year We Make Contact, the sequel to 2001. Right. Yes. I, actually, I even heard it in the intro and still didn't believe you. <laughs> that... Well, you know what's funny? That you mentioned Arthur C. Clarke. I'm sure you know this, but maybe the audience doesn't, John. When Arthur C. Clarke and Stanley Kubrick got together to make 2001, they sort of had like a gentleman's agreement. They basically worked out the story together, but they basically Correct. were like, Stanley, you go off and make the movie. You use what you like. I'll go off and write the book. I'll use what I like. They could be completely different. We don't care. We're actually kind of cool with that. So they each made their own version. Right. Because they sort of co-came up with the story together. Yeah. And because it's not like the movie's an adaptation of the book or the book's like a novelization of the movie. They, they were literally created in tandem. Yeah, they were created intentionally together. I'm going to do mine my way. You do yours your way. Both of them are the real thing. So they actually did that. I, it was highly successful from what I understand. You don't hear about the book as much in the modern day, but the book was very successful. People were really tripped out by it, man. Um, and so Arthur C. Clarke decided to write sequels to 2001 so he i think i believe the idea was originally his he's like eh, i kind of want to write a sequel to 2001 so he did you know and i'm i don't know if kubrick gave a shit i'm sure he was like eh, do it <laughs> do what you want bro it's your book um and then so they decided well if he's making a sequel we're gonna put that shit on film and answer all those awful questions that stanley kubrick raised up those unanswerable uh, what is the meaning of life kind of questions <laughs> uh yeah i should also i mean i you know i i can see where you're gonna go with this you're gonna ask me john why would you bring this as something you remember fondly I'm going to tell you. I was going to ask that. So I, apparently you are the star child. You've read my mind. That's uh, right. So I'll let you answer. My God, it's full of stars. Uh, <laughs> the reason I'm bringing it is because I felt like in fairness to young John who saw it, when I saw it, I liked it. I enjoyed it quite a bit when I was a kid. It was never going to be one of my favorites because I found out. I thought I was a sci-fi kid because I liked Star Wars. And then I found out that everybody liked Star Wars. And then I found out, oh, I don't even really like too much other sci-fi. But for a sci-fi film, I really enjoyed it. By the way, by your own admission, your parents showed you 2010 <laughs> before you ever saw well, 2001. But uh, Now, hold uh, on. I mean, I, I know there's other things to come. But again, to be fair to my parents... 
I, I think they let me watch it. So it's not really them like sitting me down and saying, oh, my God, you're going to love seeing this before the mind-blowing 2001. I think they were like, well, I don't want to fight with you. So, yeah, go ahead and watch it. <laughs> but, Nelson, I'd love for you to talk our listener through. Like, I'm going to assume a listener listening to a film podcast has either seen or has some sort of baseline understanding about what 2001 is. But my question to you is, like, what is 2010 and what is it in the context of 2001? 2001, the whole story of 2001, for those who don't know, a giant monolith, a black monolith appears out by Jupiter. And they set out a... Wait, you mean the one from last year? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly the same thing. (laughs) Holy shit. And so when the monolith appears, they send a probe to Jupiter to investigate. And lots of things happen along the way. Uh, the, the onboard AI computer that they take with them goes crazy and tries to kill them. They don't know why, and it becomes a big thing in 2010, but in 2001, they have no idea why the computer goes crazy, other than in the 60s, it's like, well, yeah, because you can't trust computers. <laughs> Am I right, man? This is HAL 9000. Right. The, and so AI. HAL tries to kill everybody. Who famously goes crazy and kills everybody. Right. Dave Bowman manages to uh, stop himself from being killed, and he destroys the AI just in time to see the monolith and turn into a celestial being, question mark? There's, you know, Stanley Kubrick did like a half hour, like, drug trip of something's happening, and you won't be able to put it into words. Congratulations. So... 2010 picks up after that where back on Earth, they're like, hey, didn't we send a probe to Jupiter (laughs) at some point? Whatever happened. What happened to that? So they send up a whole nother team to investigate. And that team is Roy Scheider, John Lithgow, other other big namers. Um, I don't remember who directed this. It's probably going to be like, oh, it's Wolfgang Peterson because he (laughs) directed everything in the 80s that I loved but never knew about the director. But yeah, they send a, a pro, they send a follow up probe to Jupiter to find out what happened to the first one. Uh, my memory is they have a lot of like catastrophes along the way. The first front of 2010 is basically like a Star Trek movie where they keep running, or it's more like Apollo 13 actually. They keep running into problems. They're almost at death's door with everything they do. The second half of the movie, they find out what happened to Dave Bowman, and we'll talk about it after. But Basically, they answered concretely all the questions that nobody was asking, which is, hey, what happened to Bowman? And hey, what was with Hal anyway? What was his problem? And yeah, so they answer all the questions. They give you concrete whys, which was kind of when you watch 2001, that's the charm of it. It's like maybe you have to guess at what's going on. You don't know exactly what's going on, but it's also like, eh, that's kind of cool not knowing. Here's what's interesting. I'm not much of a learned man. I haven't read (laughs) a ton of books. But you say you were you thought you were into sci-fi. Just turns out you were a Star Wars fan. Right. Uh, when I was young, I was actually very into sci-fi. I mm. read a lot of Arthur C. Clarke. I read a lot of Isaac Asimov. Like I was very into like hard sci-fi. And thankfully, I did see the. I mean, the, I don't know about thankfully, but I did see the film two thousand one before I read the book two thousand one. Mm. Um, and yes, what you're describing as the value of the movie is, is what Kubrick brought to it, which is ambiguity, sort of obtuseness, sort of leave it on the table for you to kind of decide. That's what, one of the greatest strengths of the film is sort of, it can mean anything to any different people. And it kind of doesn't make any sense what's going on. You basically go into like a mind trip by the end. And it sort of blows your mind because it doesn't really explain itself. It's just... 
almost almost awe inspiring. Um, the I, have you read the novel two thousand one? I, I can't remember. I think I picked it okay. up at one point as a kid and never read it. But I can't because so, I remember the cover of it very distinctly. Yes. But. So I have read both a two thousand one and two thousand ten Odyssey two. Oh my god! And then I actually began to read. 3001 which came out a while ago uh and didn't end up uh finishing it because it, <laughs> it just didn't uh really do it for me but um arthur c clark is very much not like stanley kubrick in the novel so the movie's just super ambiguous the novel is very explicit about what's going on it's, uh, okay. it's really unambiguous it is blatantly obvious about a- aliens and what they are doing Oh, okay. Um, the so in the, here's so here's a perfect example. I won't like run it down scene by scene because that everyone will just put a gun in their mouth. And, uh, <laughs> that'll be that. But I, I think this is a good example that'll sort of explain it. Like in the film, uh, the monolith appears with all of the kind of Neanderthal humanoid apes, right? And in the movie, it just goes, and they they sort of like look at it in awe and then suddenly get the idea to start using tools. And it just, it doesn't really, you know, the monolith has affected them in some way, but it's in what way or how it's pretty ambiguous, right? In the novel, um, the monolith uh, from forth of it comes alien uh, lessons and learning and oh. it's very it's like apes are basically being programmed and educated and sort of like it's not subtle at all like it's <laughs> it's very blatantly like aliens are trying to evolve these creatures into higher beings right and so that's sort of arthur c Clarke's view and that that that's what why you say the ending of 2001 is sort of like and ambi- why would you answer any of these questions and it's already answered in the novel right so well, it's not so much like oh we need to answer the what wasn't covered it's very clearly like the star child and da- the, what dave what's happening to dave bowman at the end of 2001 is akin to what arthur c clark wrote is happening to the apes at the beginning right he's very explicit and very hard sci-fi and this and the sequel is very similar so i i suspect much like you do that it, it's adapted from his book and is more like his books are and not right. so much like what 2001 was well what's interesting is I, I i don't remember the specifics of it because i just remember being fascinated to find out that kubrick and clark had worked together and sort of had the intent of like yes. hey someone could watch the movie read the book they'd get the whole story so i, I it, find that super interesting it's really yeah. interesting well because again you're talking about like kubrick being like i'm super ambiguous i don't you know hold your hand he's shooting it out into the ether and saying like this is going to stand for all time as far as he knows everybody's going to read the book see the movie together and know what's going on sort of and it's just sure. weird you know the way things go that like while well, the movie lives on the book sort of disappears from the the pop well, culture it's also really interesting because arthur c clark in a way sort of bent the knee a little bit because <laughs> in the novel 2001 uh they go to saturn oh not jupiter okay. so the, the mission goes to saturn and then i'm guessing somewhere in production kubrick was like Eh, Jupiter's better. It'll look better on camera or whatever. <laughs> so in the film, it's Jupiter. Right. Novel, it's Saturn. Film, it's Jupiter. And then in the sequel novel, 2010 Odyssey 2, 
it's Jupiter. (laughs) (laughs) So by his own admission, Arthur C. Clarke kind of made the film canonical. Like, right. Because because I think he's expecting like, this is what people remember this movie. Right. And they're going to be confused if it's Saturn or something. I don't know. So I always found that hysterical because I was basically like, you basically have all but said like the movie's more important than this novel. (laughs) So how did the novel end? I, well, it's wild. So the very in a very similar way, it's just more kind of clear. So rather rather than just colors and wild stuff, you know, it's basically I, now it's been a long time, so I'm not like totally up on it. But he is explicitly called the Star Child, and it it is he does return to Earth. Oh, okay. It might. I think you can vaguely interpret it as like he ex- he blows the earth up or something like that. I remember <laughs> something like that. I do remember a trick that Arthur C. Clarke also pulls with these sequels where he, he does this multiple times where he takes a minor a minor character in the previous story and es- elevates them to main character. Right. So okay. in this, uh, Roy Scheider is playing, I forgot the character's name, but in 2001, there's a scientist that visits the moon. Okay. And goes and sees the monolith. And oh, the guy kinda, who's like on the on, who's the, on the moon. He's got like it. T- he calls like um Stanley Kubrick's daughter or whatever and like Right. And and he sort of is the guy that is in the pre-story before the main Jupiter mission. So that character is who Scheider is. Oh, that's funny. I didn't know yes. that. Uh, that's so he, really funny. It, he is that character. And funny enough, in 3001, <laughs> just, just a funny aside, the, the main character of that is the not Dave Bowman astronaut that got jettisoned into space and died. <laughs> and his uh, crystallized frozen corpse floats <laughs> through space for a thousand years and then is found by humans that colonized another planet like light years away and they reanimate him. <laughs> And he's the main character of 3001 going, holy shit, look at the future. This is crazy. That's actually about, I got two chapters in and I was like, come on. That's sort of when I stopped reading. But we're talking a lot about 2001. We're talking a lot about the novels, but that's not what we're here for, Mr. Nelson. We're here to watch the film 2010, The Year We Make Contact. So what do you remember about the film specifically? I don't remember terribly much. I remember about two sequences the first sequence I remember the most is Roy Scheider meets Dave Bowman, the star child, right? And Dave Bowman... Spoiler alert. <laughs> no, it's fine. And Dave Bowman sort of goes down, here's what happened to me after the last movie. And, <laughs> and it's sort of like, oh, when you put it in black and white like that, it's sort of uh, not as sexy. The other thing I remember, and part of the reason I'm like, is that any good? Is um, John Lithgow at some point in the first half of the movie when they're having some trouble, he has to do something. And I don't remember what the problem is. He has to go out in like a suit and he's super claustrophobic and he's having a meltdown while he's trying to do the job that he's there to do. Not a good astronaut. And he's terrified. Between this and the Twilight Zone movie, this is what put Lithgow like burned him into my brain because he did such a good job in both of those movies of portraying absolute sheer panic like terror and yet being like human and relatable not just like a a squirmy i don't know there's something to the way that like he does fear and and 
terror and just like and and pushing through it because that's kind of the trick in both of those movies he's terrified and he's pushing through it in the twilight zone movie it's to terrible effect i believe in <laughs> 2010 it's a little more happy but i was just like I, I i think i saw these within a year of each other something like that and i was just like god this guy is like the most normal human being on the face of the planet he plays the most normal person because i didn't know about his you know first career as a fucking mustache twirling villain in all of de palma's <laughs> films basically <laughs> <laughs> which he's also great at the man honestly john lithgow to me is one of my favorites he's a genius i've met oh, him in he's, person he's so good oh he's awesome i i gotta tell this story i was in usc film school they basically ha i was in a sitcom writing class they took us to see a filming of third rock from the sun john lithgow saw us from like a distance like whispered to somebody like who are these fucking kids and they said something like, well, they're the class from USC that you said could come. Oh, and he like lit up and he came on over and he was singing our fight song. And he was like asking his question. So what's this class? Tell me all about it. And he just sat and chatted with us for a long while. And it was very, very touching. It was everything I dreamed of when I was watching Cliffhanger. <laughs> of course. You know, uh, there was a celebrity that came to my college and I got to meet. Oh, yeah. Who's that? Kevin Spacey. Oh, Anyway, <laughs> okay. So you remember the the sort of John Lithgow in space? Yeah. Is that and then you remember Dave Bowman is in the mix? Yes, I remember. And they sort of like recreated the sets from two thousand one. Though at the time I didn't know they were recreations, and they sort of recreated the effect at the right. end of two thousand one, where he's sort of bopping back and forth through his ages, like he's an old man at one point, right. he's young. And I do remember, like, the only thing I can remember, like the ba behind the scenes of two thousand ten, because my parents were mystified by this. Apparently. Uh, the guy, the actor who played Bowman was the Paul Rudd of his time and did yes. not age. Yes. Actually, I'm very glad you brought this up because this was my reaction to this as well. The 2001 was made in the fucking 60s. It was 1968 when it came out. Yeah. yeah. And then 2010 came out in the 80s. Yeah. 20 so, years so it's later. A good, it's like 15, 20 years later. This man didn't age a day. <laughs> it, it was insane. The guy that played Dave Bowman, I've never seen him in any other movie or anything like I, I was shocked when I watched it going like, what the fuck? Like, he, what is this he, sorcery? He like walked off the set of 2001 into a fucking wormhole. Like, he actually <laughs> went through it for real. And then like came out in the eighties and then shot that. It was insane. He looked, I, he looks identical. Yeah. It's totally crazy. Yeah. So that's what my parents were mystified by. They're like, he looks yeah. the same as when we saw this movie 20 years ago. And very convenient for the filmmakers. Right. Oh, right. <laughs> for uh, whoever, for Wolfgang or whoever it was, they're like, shit, I don't need to recast. Well, the uh, subtitle of the film is The Year We Make Contact. Do you remember anything about making contact? Well, I mean, this is kind of the spoiler of the movie, which is like they just sort of reveal, don't they, that like, yes, aliens have been trying to advance you for the last what? several thousand years. Are you and sure that's what it is? Well, the I thing I remember, the, the, the funny thing is I saw 2010, I was like, oh, man, all these questions answered. And then when I saw 2001, I was a little confused because I was like, oh, okay, doesn't doesn't this sort of happen in the first movie? I mean, it's sort of said out loud, like you say, in the second mm -hmm. movie, but... The first movie is like, yeah, he he ascends, right? He becomes God or the I, devil or whatever. <laughs> I won't tell you what it is, but I think there's an aspect that is escaping your memory. 
Maybe. I mean, I, that, uh, I remember he's... I mean, it's fine. That, that, so, so, and we can talk about it on, on the back end after we've seen okay. the film. But, but from my memory, there is... I mean, if, it, if this is a football game, uh-huh. two, 2001 took it to the, you know, freaking 10th yard line, like, right, like <laughs> from right near the end zone. Took it about 90 yards. And then 2010 takes it you know just trots it over the basically kicks a field goal but like (laughs) you know (laughs) finishes it off a bit like they're they do do a little something that is a little more than not 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 like visually or excitingly but in terms of just pure plot okay like so it's not uh it's interesting you keep saying they explain all the questions we didn't have last time as sort of that's all that happens and i actually would challenge that a bit in that there there is something that happens in the movie that that is an explanation but um is more than what happened in the first movie oh i see i'll say well are you talking about the hal thing i'm not talking about Hal. although you are correct Hal does make a reappearance well yeah Hal makes a actually obligated (laughs) to show up (laughs) well and he's basically the same character as bishop in aliens where he shows up and 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 says so what happened to the, you know, what was the deal with the other one? And it's like, well, Hal, he went crazy. And he's like, oh, well, those models, yeah, they were known for going crazy. And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> the, the movie does reveal concretely why Hal 9000 went nuts. Sure. And I, if I remember, they actually bring, so they have like a copy of Hal, because obviously Hal, there's more than one Hal 9000. Right. Know, this, is, this is a computer program. If I remember, they bring one along with them. Yes. That back from like Langley or fucking NASA or wherever they're at, and uh, and that one sort of interfaces with the the one from two thousand one, right? And discovers and, why, he, yeah, yeah, why things went going on, yeah, why things went nuts. If I recall that, and you sort of brought this up a little bit, but the, the plot of the movie is almost like an investigation, like it's sort of like right. we sent Dave Bowman on the Jupiter mission. We, we have not heard from him. It's been like a decade or maybe a couple of decades. And like, well, it's 2001 to 2010, right? Oh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that's a, that's I a mean, fair uh, point. Call me. I, I mean, maybe it's a hint. Yes. I, <laughs> <laughs> it's been nine years. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> um, let's find out what happened. And so that's a lot of the plot of the movie is an investigation. It's like, we're going to bring up this copy. How we're going to go out there. I believe they find the ship from 2001 and like they're trying to find Dave and trying to figure out what's going on. I actually really liked this movie as well when I saw it, but I saw it as a sequel and I was also really into nerdy sci-fi stuff. Right. So even though this didn't spiritually or, or really visually match like, stanley kubrick right filmmaker god (laughs) you know uh i remember as someone who read the books as someone who was just nerdy i really dug the science fiction of it and that i'm curious if that's going to maintain for me right i think it might because i remember a lot about it i only saw this film one time oh interesting so it's pretty it's pretty wild that i remember like a decent amount of plot points and the ending and sort of like ma- major things that happen in it. Um, it stuck with me in a way. Mr. Nelson, I only have a single question for you. What's the meaning of life? I have two questions. <laughs> <laughs> uh, will the film hold up? I am going to say uh, in, in the same way that we watched Psycho 2, 
I'm going to say it'll hold up in that way. It, will it hold up as a, as a sequel to 2001? How can it? It's one of the best movies ever made. So don't judge it by that standard. Judging by the standard, is it interesting? Is it fun on its own? I'm going to say yes, it'll hold up. It's it. Maybe it shouldn't exist, but the fact that it exists and is not so bad, that's what I'm looking forward to. It does have a very low bar because it's like, well, <laughs> it's not 2001, so it's a piece of shit. That's <laughs> that's generally what sure. it sort of gets, well, you know. I, yeah, I, I think we could both absolutely easily go on record. No, this film will not be 2001. It won't even be remotely close. It's not going to be in the, the fucking AFI's top. I mean, it's not even. It's, it's not ever. quite apples and oranges, but it's yeah. like it's like apples and like apple chips. You know, it's like <laughs> you can't really. We're not going to say this is an apple. Like, Both are so delicious, though. <laughs> but um, I actually, I actually am going to agree with you. I'm going to posit that it will hold up as well. One because obviously, as I've uh, copped to in this recording here, uh, I am a big sci-fi nerd, and I remember enjoying this story i remember being interested in it and um i think that stuff's gonna hold up for me now maybe i'll be surprised (laughs) (laughs) maybe it won't but um i you know i i I think no 2001 this ain't right but uh i think it's a it's a perfectly serviceable decent sci-fi movie so i i think it's going to maintain that and hold up I'm I'm ready for it. I'm 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 excited. This is like one of those things I had I had forgotten about it and then when I remembered, oh yeah, 2010. I really liked that as a kid. I can't remember it. Let's do that. It was, it's sort of like genetically engineered for this podcast, so. Oh yes. So here we go. Excellent. Well, we are going to blast off into the stratosphere. Touch the monolith and have our minds blown with 2010. The year we make contact, and we will be right back. How are you going to convince your people to allow Americans to go on the flight? We are going to get there first, and you have the knowledge to make the trip work. I'm going on the flight. How far away is Jupiter? Far. Mommy said you're going to be asleep for a long time. Are you going to die? Dr. Floyd, Dr. Arlov has encountered some strange data coming from Europa. Listen for a minute. We've got to get out of here. I can't just order us to leave here for no reason. Forget reason. There's no time to be reasonable. Are you sure you are making the right decision? I think we should stop. You see, something's going to happen. What? Something wonderful. Ladies and gentlemen, we have returned from Jupiter. We are back from watching 2010, the year we make contact. Nelson, how are you doing? My God, it's full of stars. (laughs) 
Stars like Roy Scheider, like <laughs> Helen Mirren, mm-hmm, like yeah. Bob Balaban. Like, no, <laughs> let's go. Yeah, there was uh, it was all star cast. It was full it, of stars. That Russian guy that's in every movie playing a Russian. You yep. know? Well, I think uh, Longino, when we saw her name pop across, I thought, well, this would probably be the first movie that I saw with Helen Mirren in it then, which is funny because I totally oh, forgot she was in this. So Yeah, yeah, I did as well. I, we saw her name in the credits. We we're like, oh, shit, Helen Mirren. Who, we totally forgot she was in the movie. Plays a Russian which, very convincingly. I don't, I don't know what that says about us as young men that, you know, John Lithgow, we both like remembered that Helen Mirren <laughs> escaped our minds. Like you, one would think that we would hopefully have remembered, but oh well. Well, partly because she's playing someone she usually doesn't play, which is like the really harsh task mistress. I'm very disappointed in my younger self. That's all, that's all <laughs> I want to state. So I, I had sort of hinted before we started the movie, you're not quite remembering everything that happens. Right. So what was that you were you were missing so are you talking about the ending where they have to get away from jupiter before it blows up and creates a second sun certainly yes okay yes i had forgotten all about that part although when they got when they were getting closer to it i i I didn't remember the ending but i was thinking to myself so is this some sort of adam and eve thing (laughs) and it sort of was because they you know they they the alien civilization whatever it is they sent a message to earth saying all of these worlds are yours except europa don't go to europa i'm like well then they're gonna go right to europa they're gonna (laughs) earthlings are gonna go well fuck that shit we're gonna go to europa the universe is gonna blow up yes yes i think eden is yes you're right that is a that is very much a, a Certainly, if not intentional, certainly subconsciously, like, uh, yes, the, the Garden of Eden, the the, tr- the apple from the Tree of Knowledge. D- you can do anything you want, but this ain't for you. Don't do this. Don't, Don't come do it. Here. Yeah. That, that's a that's a good uh, parable for sure. Uh, well, so while we were watching the movie, I did a, a little bit of research on the novels because I had said some things before we watched, like, I think dave bowman the star child blows up the earth in the novel i'm not not sure but uh one thing i had sort of forgotten is that arthur c clark even in 2001 uh focused much more on the cold war and relations between u.s and russia my memory was a little fuzzy it's not (laughs) that the star child comes and blows up the earth it's that the star child comes and blows up a nuclear missile space station orbiting the earth in sort of a show of i i presume peace or like you know saving the earth from nuclear weapons or or something kind of along those lines like superman 4 yes (laughs) (laughs) and uh this film kind of continues in that vein way even more heavy-handedly like i didn't actually remember Like, the big main thing in the movie is, like, Russian-U.S. relations and sort of there's, like, a a Cold War turning hot with a a Cuban Missile Crisis-esque war that's escalating while the scientists are doing their thing. That was an aspect of the movie both of us forgot, but it's sort of a major part of this story. I was going to say, which is crazy because it it figures in so heavily. I mean— if the first oh, yes if the Very first movie is, is sort of like well this is sort of our our first you know because this is before we'd even hit the moon really and this is like this is how close we are to humanity achieving you know the next step this was sort of like 
<laughs> this like pointed it right back at the earth and said, no, you're not even ready to get off the earth yet because you can't even quit fighting with each other. And it's so interesting to me that like during a time where, you know, Russian American relations were at such a, a low and, you know, we were watching movies like Rocky four and like, yeah, Russia sucks, <laughs> right. USA. It's interesting that I forgot all about that stuff, but it's so the movie. I mean, the movie is about the Cold War. Absolutely. Even more than like, you know, I don't know how much it was in the, the book of 2001, but 2001, the movie, like you say, it grazes it, whereas this like just hits it with a hammer yeah. many times. Well, I so. think the, I mean, obviously the movie barely touched on it originally. The the uh, novel does somewhat, and then the second novel, 2010, even the Arthur C. Clarke novel is very much cold war influence and talking all about this stuff that's a very common kind of sci-fi theme from the cold war is this idea that like science and technology and 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 space can Mm -hmm. sort of save us from this like that we could sort of bury the hatchet and and become brothers and sisters in in like space travel and science and stuff it's a very idyllic uh, common theme in sci-fi that Arthur C. Clarke certainly uh, seems to have dabbled in a bit. Yeah. And this movie certainly uh, carries forward. Yeah. Um, speaking of uh, the creators of the film, I, I looked it up. I guess that um, when they decided they wanted to do this movie, I guess it was, you know, uh, MGM or whoever owned the rights at the time, said, well, we're doing this movie. It's happening. And so they asked Peter Hyams, who was the director. I had forgotten that. Um, they asked him, hey, do you want to do it? Well, they asked uh, Stanley Kubrick first, and he said, fuck no, I don't want to do it. <laughs> He's like, get the he fuck was, out of here. Get, get away from <laughs> Do you know who I am? And then they went to Peter Hyams next, and he's like, uh, well, I'd like to you know, do this, but I, I got to make sure that it, Stanley approves. So he calls up Stanley Kubrick, and Kubrick's like, again, I don't give a good fuck what you do. <laughs> I mean, I think he was much nicer about it. He's like, yeah, sure. do your own thing. Make your own movie. Yeah, it'll be great. But, uh, yeah, apparently, I mean, if not his blessing, then he certainly got the a, a pass from Kubrick to, to follow him up. So he decided, well, I'll just go and do this thing then. And I, it seemed like he was, I mean, I can only guess. I didn't read anything about him directly. But it seems like Himes was, like, trying his best to be like, okay, I, I'm going to sort of take the, the Clark approach on this. I'm going to sort of... You know, I'm going to do the Cold War thing. I'm going to do the themes in the book that aren't kind of touched on as much. I'm going to ground it in a way that six, uh, that uh, 2001 is not grounded. It's it's really interesting to me that he sort of just said, no, this is, this is a sequel, but uh, it's not a stylistic sequel, I guess. That's what I'm Certainly aiming not, for. Yeah. yeah, it's not like he tried to duplicate what Kubrick did and what's interesting to me is like whereas when you look at 2001 you look at it and it's kind of like oh this seems like a semi-realistic look at space from the perspective of somebody in a time when like well we had no idea what it would look like we barely can get a rocket off the the earth now it's like by that time we'd sent many more people to the moon we'd sent many 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 more things into space so it's much more grounded there's a lot less um fantastical feeling to it it's much more like not truckers in space necessarily but it but it is a job now it's just a thing yeah whereas like the first one it's sort of an adventure this one is sort of like no this is just a job yeah it was really interesting that, that what he chose to focus on in this one and he also this was the interesting thing to me if you look at 2001's vision of the actual 2001 it totally gets it wrong it's completely i mean <laughs> right in a lot of ways it's completely off the mark whereas 2010 
looking at you know the year 2010 from 1984 i think uh gets it much more like close like you know there's not obviously they don't get everything right but it's like from the beginning of the movie it's it starts on earth and it's like Roy Scheider in like shorts and just like working on a you know a, a satellite dish and a, a Russian guy talking to him and they're having to kind of yell and scream over the wind. I, I don't know. It's it, there was something about it that's like, oh, this is a, a real Earth. This takes well, place let's, on. Let's call it grounded. I mean, I think that's the thing. I, th- right. I think two thousand one is is a, a a mind trip. Like it's yes. it's not really made to feel like it's happening now or re- or grounded in any kind of realistic world we would now understand. It's it's really basking in the in the science and the wonder of space travel so it's right. like several like 15 20 minute segments segments just about like traveling on a ship from earth to the moon you know <laughs> right docking the ship you know how is gravity working oh a pin flew off him and we're gonna painstakingly put it back on while he's sleeping and like you know it, it really that that Kubrick film just focuses on this minutia of space travel and right. there's like barely a plot like it, it you know you can literally <laughs> sum up everything that happens in the movie in like five minutes yes uh, whereas this movie is just way more your standard movie I agree with you there it, it it's focused on character development right um, Roy Scheider it's like uh, fresh out of Amity, <laughs> just got <laughs> dropped off and put on a satellite dish. He might as well be that same character, like mayor of Amity or uh, uh, police chief of of Amity. Like he he just looks the part. Like he he just right. killed Jaws. Now he's here to to help out. And like yeah, every it's all about character. It's all about oh my. You didn't spend any time with Dave Bowman's family really other than like what <laughs> frank pool gets a birthday message or something for like a hot minute you know in the original movie but other right. than that, and it's the saddest most like happy birthday to you <laughs> we love you but it, they're they're like cult like they're basically already corpses in the in 2001 <laughs> they're barely alive right like they're just like functioning people going which, and doing which you, their tasks which you could say is uh is a thing that stanley kubrick seemed to grapple with which is like making his characters human <laughs> <laughs> right but yeah it has nothing to do we I could describe who dave bowman is as a character like there is no character it's all visual and just the the wonder right right so this is like you know i mean this is totally different you have they're in space and it's a bucket of bolts shaking as they're and every literally people are cowering in fear clutching each other yeah uh, terrified uh at, at space you know, like you said and you remembered it really vividly uh the john lithgow sort of spacewalk scene yes which, which you were totally correct like his i mean it was you know it was a fine sequence but his acting really really brought it home I, what I did not remember was his like panting and have, it's just literally like five minutes of like, <laughs> you know, well, it's sort I, of taking, it I mean, it's sort of, out. yeah, it's sort of taking that cue from 2001 because there is a time in 2001 where they're doing like some work and it is kind of, you know, uh, you know, pivotal, but scary work. And they're, and for a while, all you hear from them is, <sighs> 
and they don't say anything about like their breathing but you're kind of listening to their breathing and it's kind of making you tense whereas in this they're very focused on like dude quit breathing so hard you're hyperventilating knock it off you're gonna kill yourself don't vomit in your helmet dude you're gonna choke so yeah again much more grounded much more uh every man i don't i want to say yeah it's it's less fantastical and like if 2001 is a space odyssey 2010 is a space movie. It's, <laughs> it's a regular movie with stories about people, ca- grounded characters, lots of character work. Oh, what do you, hey, what's your family like? Oh, here's some Kentucky bourbon and Russians and Americans like getting to know each other, becoming friends. Right. Maybe having affairs with each other. It's sort of <laughs> like not really understood. The stakes of the movie are like human stakes. And then they're just witnesses to this kind of crazy de- literal deus ex machina movie <laughs> right. where 10 million uh, monoliths uh, turn Jupiter into a sun. It's not at all, it, it doesn't really leave you with wonder. In fact, we, we sort of joked that there's a running sort of <laughs> like plot device in the movie where, where uh, Roy Scheider is, is writing his wife or sending his wife messages right or writing letters <laughs> or something and it was always <laughs> it was just exposition it was like honestly frankly really lazy where he, he was like honey the trip's going well we're gonna try to dock with hal today and then blah, 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 blah. it went on forever and i just started joking like no like i love you i miss you how are the kids doing like no it was just all exposition it was really funny yeah the only time he talked to his kid is at the very end where he's imparting the message of you know peace and love another thing before i forget i had remembered that uh they take a version of hal 9000 with them on the trip uh and it was like a more advanced version there is a more advanced version of hal it's called sal 9000 and it's a woman's voice this time um but they don't take her with they they leave her on earth and the whole idea is to reactivate the original hal and i was like oh that actually is very interesting and i might actually i might be conflating novel and film Oh, okay. I, I could be I could be wrong about this. Who knows? I had a memory that they bring literally bring a copy of Hal 9000 with them. That may be an invention of my bad memory uh-huh. or that may actually be an aspect of the novel that that was simplified for the for the movie. Well, for us, that's a much more daily thing. You know, we understand a lot more about A.I. And like if you create an A.I., like then you can you can stuff, copy yeah. it. Yeah. Whereas back in the 60s, it's like. You know, when computers filled up entire rooms and shit like that, it's like, well, right. you can't make a copy. The first one, you know, cost us $10 million. We ain't making no copy. Right. Maybe they were concerned people wouldn't understand how the character could be two iterations of, like, the same personality but different, you know, versions or something. So they, right. that, that would explain Sal. It's yes. like, no, it's not Hal, it's Sal. You know, it's a different person. Now, the interesting thing about that is not remembering that it was the original Hal that they brought along, or that they not that they bring along, that they reactivate. That led to some tension in the movie, again, that I'd forgotten about, where it's like they reactivate him and they need him to sort of uh, guide the machine or the, guide the ships at the end when they're trying to escape. They need to kind of break away from the mission, disobey their orders and get home quick. And Hal who they explain in this movie, the reason he got so uh, homicidal in the first one is he was given kind of conflicting orders, which is protect, you know, the humans, but, you know, don't let them know what the mission parameters are. And so he went nuts and and killed them to, you know, fulfill the mission or whatever. So now 
he's back up and running. He's forgotten. They've they've erased his memory of that, but he's still sort of in that nebulous like, well, was it how or was it his orders or, you know, because there is not, you know, even though his creator is there and saying well how is this and this is how he will act even he doesn't seem to completely trust that how will do as he's asked or that how will yeah. will respond as he's supposed to respond and Literally i think really sweating like. yes <laughs> well i think that's the, you know at the end that's for him his little arc is like oh well how was a you know much more of a being than i actually had thought when i created him and at the beginning he actually tells Sal, because he's going to shut her down and, and try some stuff, he says, I'm going to shut you down. And Sal says, well, will I dream? And he says, of course, all intelligent creatures dream. And then at the end, when Hal says the same thing, he says, I, I, I don't know. <laughs> and right. I, he's and just it's, very honest. And, and it's weird because you think to yourself, oh, I thought he was being honest before. I thought he was saying, oh, he actually believes this. And then you're thinking to yourself, oh, maybe he doesn't even do it. And maybe even he doesn't believe it. He's just telling Sal something nice. And how he's trying very di- hard to tell the truth to. So he's like, ah. Well, it's great because how might as well be asking, like, will I still be here when I die? Is like right. basically the question, right? So so these are his children. And then Sal says it. He's like, oh, yeah, you're going to go to a magical wonderland. It's great. <laughs> you, you'll dream lots of dreams. And then, yeah, it, he's sort of real he's being bluntly honest with Hal and it's just like I have no fucking idea it's just (laughs) like I don't know I actually thought that was clever it makes sense that sort of in in the original film Hal is is the nicest computer in the world and the shocker is that he becomes a murdering psycho right so it's 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 they're very clever in the way that it's like everyone watching this movie is gonna not trust Hal at all like they're just like you're you're a murderer and so they they sort of give him this hero's journey of, of like <laughs> redeeming himself, and it, it, they like it, we had talked about uh, this movie sort of answering questions no one asked about two thousand one. Right. I think this is the biggest sort of answer is like what happened with Hal, and the movie sort of posits well the problem is that the government agencies made him lie which is not in his programming they made him hide information this made him go fucking crazy. And then he started killing everyone because he just couldn't compute all this shit. Right. So the, what's interesting, and that's part of the sort of Bob Balaban telling the truth is like by not lying to Hal and by saying, I don't know the answer to that. I don't know this. And yes, we're, we're actually using you to get the fuck out of here and you're going <laughs> to die. He, all Hal says is, oh, thank you. Thank you for telling me the truth. And then he sort of respects him. So it's sort of that's the biggest answer is like, it's our fault that Hal went wrong. Right. It wasn't just bad wiring. Which um, is, it's so interesting because that to me is like such a 60s paranoia, th- like don't yes. trust anybody over 30 <laughs> type thing. And yet it's not in that movie. Maybe it's sort of baked in with just don't trust anything. But like yes. the fact that they're sort of going back to this older paranoia and, and using that as the, um, the, the thrust of it. And again, it might be in the book too. So maybe... No. But, uh, but um, the reason I bring up answers is because one of the, your sort of criticisms you laid against this film uh, before <laughs> we watch it was like they explain everything about Dave Bowman and the Star Child and what happened there. Right. And I would actually I sort of remembered that, too. Like, I remember him being in it a lot. Right. He's actually like not in it that much. No, he's not. And he's fairly ambiguous still. Like, they, they we certainly see a little more of him. But I think they sort of, I mean, I'd say the biggest other answer is like, what is the intention of these aliens and Dave Bowman and what are they doing? 
But again, it's sort of as someone who read the novel like in 2001, that's already answered in that. Right. Which is like, you know, I mean, it's things you can intuit if you loosely read the film 2001. But it's like, yes, there are aliens. They are among us. They are (laughs) manipulating things, trying to evolve us. Basically like what we would call God, you know, is some kind of alien being evolving us. And, you know, I I actually think the movie doesn't really. I mean, I'm curious to know what you think, because to me, it didn't. It's not like it just laid it all out for Dave, like and explained him. No, I mean, I think the Hal stuff was much more the the explanation that I was remembering, because I remember that sort of speaking for a lot of things. But I think you're right. The Dave Bowman stuff. I mean, honestly, the only explanation it gives is that he's still around. Basically, he's not this you know weird you know <laughs> fetus orbiting earth he's <laughs> he's still where he he died supposedly as to why they needed dave bowman that actually is i mean having seen it now again i feel like the movies actually make more of a point of like yeah like dave bowman is important for some reason and i'm like i kind of don't see that he's important whatsoever <laughs> you know, to this uh evolution well, thing he I seems mean, like a liaison between uh aliens and humans or something it's right. like oh he once was one of these people so he can literally speak their language i guess or whatever right. and deliver messages for us right and you know maybe that's the you know he's going to be the the keeper of this new place or the god of this new place i mean there's a lot of things that it could be it's just interesting that like (laughs) he's ascended and yet the ascension is nothing more than just like you say he's a translator (laughs) you know what i mean he uh he speaks for the uh the alien gods or whatever well it's tricky because it's like it's him and it's not him right like there's this scene in 2010 the movie we just watched where he 10 years too late transmits (laughs) to his wife on his ex-wife now onto her television and scares the living shit out of her and then just goes, hey, I just want to stop by and say I miss you and I love you. Hope you moved on. Thanks. Great. Bye. Like, for it was a little odd. Actually, that's I was talking about there's no character of Dave Bowman in 2001, but in this movie we get his dying mother, we get his <laughs> wife, right. and it's like really important that he says goodbye to all these people. But he says something interesting to her. He basically says like something along the lines of like, yes, I this person who was Dave Bowman, I have his memories. Yeah, all the best parts of Dave Bowman are still alive. Are still in me. here. Yeah, just sort of, sort of insinuating there's even more beyond that. Right. So it's sort of like he has the memories of that person, but has become something else. Right. In addition to that, or whether something else absorbed or, him. Or another being. Yeah, yeah. It literally could be like Dave Bowman's long dead and this alien just has all his memories or whatever's it's a, happening. It's an alien who thinks he's Dave Bowman because he's like, well, it seems like I'm Dave Bowman, Basically. but I don't really feel like it. Yeah, he sounds like a replicant saying like, well, I have all these false memories, so I'm this person. I mean, who knows? Right. What, what, I, what also dawned on me watching this again uh, is I think this is the first movie I saw about sort of terraforming or the mm. idea of like creating a, a new world out of a dead planet or in this case a dead moon of Europa. Right. I know that also around this time that um, Star Trek had a similar, they had that like world creating bomb mm-hmm. plot that was yes. in like Search for Spock and 
And uh, well, Star Trek Two, where they they it's Wrath kill, of Khan, yeah, right? they yeah. Wrath of yeah. Khan, where they kill the planet right. to create a new one, which is almost exactly what's being done yeah. here. They so kill Jupiter like in the water of the eighties or whatever, like this sort of terraforming <laughs> thing, right? Um, and now we quite frequently play a board game called Terraforming Mars, which right. is like the exact same idea. But this, for whatever reason, this was the first one I ever saw, and and. Watching it this time, it wasn't that big a deal, but I, I, I suddenly remember there's this closing shot of, like, they show Europa, and it's an ice moon, and then it sort of melts away, and then it's sort of there, and then all of a sudden there's trees and, like, swamp shit and stuff, and the camera tilts over, and it's like, holy shit, there's a monolith, right? Right. And this time, I was just kind of like, well, well, like, okay, whatever. But I remember... <laughs> As a kid, I remember going like, holy shit. Like it, it's I, I the memory came back to me that that kind of blew my mind. Oh, OK. Which sounds silly because it's so like tropish and commonplace <laughs> now. But I think at the time it was it was sort of like that was the first time I saw that concept. Right. I mean, it's it's almost like you can't have that without it it's almost like oh it's the wonder of it is like well now there's no wonder it's a tool that they use to jump start <laughs> evolution i would say the wonder was gone when they zoom in on jupiter becoming a wormhole and then they literally said there was a million monoliths yeah. <laughs> the world's worst cg of like mo- hundreds well, of thousands of monoliths flying around the world's worst because the world's first i mean yeah, this was even before first. the last Fighter, so it was this- some straight langolier shit like it looks <laughs> terrible <laughs> i was just like and eh, this is kind of a portrait kind of takes away the wonder yes well there was a lot of there were some things in there that like they'd be going so well for a while and there would be a moment like at one point roy scheider is telling um helen mirren that like okay here's my plan for getting us away from here super quick and he picks up two pens or something like that oh yeah yeah and then they suddenly start floating which nothing else in this yes. whole movie has floated without gravity, you know. And that was a big thing about 2001. It's like they had yes. to secure everything. People had to wear special boots. That, that bothered the shit out of me, too. Yeah, it was because- like they, they'd established that, like, okay, we don't need that anymore. We've established artificial gravity in here. It's all fine. And then suddenly there's shit floating, and I'm like, whoa, yeah. say now. Because well, you can't have both. Like right. either there's gravity or there's not gravity. You can't, you can't, they can't be walking around in gravity and then have magic floating pins. And right. actually the movie painstakingly, they show artificial gravity. Like the ship is rotating around creating gravity. Even when they first land on discovery, it's, it's in a sort of a spiral mm-hmm. and it's moving around. And then it's like, Oh, okay. Yeah. The, there's gravity there. And then as soon as they settle it, there's not gravity on it. And yes, I agree. 2001 went it went all it just like was crazy specific about gravity. Yes. That's why I loved it cuz it was slow as fuck. It's like everyone had velcro <laughs> shoes and it took like a fucking eternity to like walk like 90 degrees to walk in some other room. Yes. Yeah, and I thought it was kind of lazy and so it's like, "Oh, we need this visual tool to show us the ships." It's like do you just burned like two movies of <laughs> logic for this one moment oh I, I found out why kubrick didn't use uh saturn oh why not he did not visually want to have to deal with the rings i get it 
<laughs> right? I mean, it makes sense. It's like, uh, okay, it's like, fine. Fuck that. <laughs> <laughs> but it is funny that's like, what, you know, I'm sure Arthur C. Clarke is like, oh, God, okay, it's got to be, you know, Saturn because Saturn has this kind of gravity or this kind of atmosphere or this kind of thing or this kind of that. And Kubrick's like, fuck it. I don't like the rings. <laughs> Get out of here. They did have a cute little nod to Arthur C. Clarke and Stanley Kubrick in this film that I appreciated, even though it was a little corny. But. In this whole Cold War plot, someone pops down a Newsweek or a Time magazine or something, and it says, like, war? Question mark? <laughs> and then there's there's a Soviet leader and a U.S. leader on both sides, and very obviously, one side was Stanley Kubrick and the other side was Arthur C. Clarke as yes. these two, like, president and, and, you know, leader of Russia. And premier, yes. And premier, Clark yeah. was the American and, and uh, Stanley that Kubrick was Yes, it was funny. Something you said sparked this memory. One of my favorite lines in the whole thing is, you know, there's this uh, Cuban Missile Crisis going on, and at one point they're telling them how bad things are getting, and this is the quote, and I love it. The president addressed a joint session of Congress yesterday. He evoked Lincoln. Whenever a president is going to get us in serious trouble, they always use Lincoln. And Longino <laughs> and I just fucking busted it. incredible. A yeah, we were dying laughing like because it's like could not like be prophetic. more yeah could not be more prescient because it's like yeah we've been here about lincoln quite a bit the last few years <laughs> the other thing i wanted to get at is in the beginning of the movie you know as the movie's sort of um you know, finding its feet or whatever the thing that it, i got hit with like a wave of like nostalgia but in a weird way not like my own personal life but the life of like man i remember being a kid in america just being like you know i was around 13 when you know, just science was just treated with this, just this like awe. And it's like, I, I don't know. There was, there was not this thing that we have now, which is like, yeah, science is kind of what you make of it. And people just, where it's like, <laughs> no, science is the thing where we're aiming for this. And science is the gateway to what we, what we want. And it's, I know they call it like a cult now, but it's just like, no, you're not going to get to fucking Saturn without science. You're not, and just the wonder right. of like science and how things work and making sure everything works as it should. It just, there was like a weird nostalgia that hit me in the very beginning and I was just like, man, we do not have this feeling anymore. There is right. science is completely distrusted, or I don't know, used as a it's weaponized in a, in a way besides its actual weaponization. It's like, right. yeah, I don't know. Well, it's maybe I mean I did so we I only lived through the very uh, twilight years of the Cold War, and I was a, a infant, so I barely remember <laughs> most of it. But, like, there was something about the Cold War that it created competition amongst countries, and then it had also created a need for scientific development. Right. Like, people don't land on the moon on a hope or a wish or a feeling. Right. <laughs> like, you have to get that shit right. Yeah. So, it like, science super really matters when you're, like, calculating trajectories and, and pulling off miracles. Yeah. Well, so, that, in it, a way, I think as that's gone away, so has, like... The, the faith or love in it well actually that was the thing i think that kicked off that feeling is in the very beginning i thought it was super clever the russian you know whoever he is like a russian ambassador or something like that is talking to roy scheider and he's like saying well we're gonna beat you there we've got the technology our ship's gonna beat you there by two years but we don't have the knowledge of what's up there you guys know yeah. what you sent up there and we need that and i just love the idea that like Yes, they're in competition, but these two scientists are getting together. It's like, how can we 
you know, hornswoggle the politicians so that we can get, you know, people of science up there. And I thought that was really great. Now, of course, it being a good movie, it also realizes politics will never outdo science because by the time they get up there and they've been asleep for a year, things have gotten terrible. And the Russians are like saying when the when, you know, Scheider wakes up, they're like, we don't we're not supposed to share. We're not sharing. We just tell you what we're supposed to tell you. And that's it. And then the movie becomes, I think the best part of this movie becomes like the Russians and the Americans, like learning to appreciate each other, learning that like, hey, we're here in this together. And especially that's most characterized in that one scene with like uh, uh, Lithgow and Max. Right. That's his name. Max, yes. the Russian. Yeah. yeah where they're. Yeah, where, buddies, yeah, where they become buddies. And they become buddies in that like real 80s way where they like live through <laughs> like trauma together and they're like real buddy buddy. And then for for the rest of the movie, they spend calling each other dummies and idiots, acting like they hate each other, but right. they are practically ready to kiss. It's, it, and it's just like because they're just so tight now. They've lived through this amazing war-like thing together, this trauma, and now they're, you know, they're... And so when Max dies, Lithgow's just fucking shattered, and it's just an amazing moment. I don't, you know, to me, that's where yeah. the heart of the movie is, is Lithgow that's and awesome. Max, and, you yeah, know. Yeah, I like that. And I like the message that it's sort of like science unites us. Like, right. I like what you're saying about, like, fuck the politics. Like, we're here to figure this thing out. And yeah. It doesn't matter what side we're on. Let's work together on this. Yeah. Well, and of course, that becomes the thing at the end is like, everybody's got to work together don't make me come down there and blow you up <laughs> right <laughs> i mean yes. in a weird way in this time you know i know it's a, d a different thing but the message of like hey these two sides being shitty to each other like let's squash this and like get together and figure it out kind right of resonates with me honestly well yeah I mean, it's you need that thing, right? It's the Watchmen idea, right? You need another right. thing right. outside of your planet for everybody to go, oh, right, we're all the same weak little humans that fall right. apart really easily. Yeah, it's a nice message. Yeah, I mean, more than I would have honestly given it credit for before we started tonight, yeah. so there's that. On the flip side, it is odd to me that they so painstakingly recreated sets and costumes and and props and things from 2001 and really revered the film 2001 as like canonical right yet brought forward almost none of its <laughs> sort of aesthetic <laughs> tone style like you said it's like it's it doesn't do any of it right except for i guess the beginning and the end where they yeah. they play the big song like <laughs> so that is odd to me like as as a sequel it's nothing like the first movie yeah but as no. its own movie it's it's you know working for yeah. as a movie so it's like i don't know it, it, actually i guess that brings up the question <laughs> did you think 2010 held up or not well, I think we called it before, which is like, as long as you take a, the original out of the equation, then yes, this I think this holds up as its own movie with its own priorities, its own set of values. Yeah, I can. I mean, it's not perfect. It certainly, as we've said, it's got some flaws and, you know, it's not one of the movies that I would say, oh, my God, I need to rewatch this again and again to recapture that feeling. But it is. I'm, I mean, it was solid. I was engaged throughout. I, I like I say, I really dug Lithgow and and the Russian thing. And seeing a surprise Helen Mirren is never a bad thing. This is not the most dramatic holdup I've I've ever given anything, but I'll say it holds up. Sure. Yeah, it's really interesting. I think I think this is where I stand. Just as a movie, I think it held up. Like it was, 
the actors are great the story was engaging the the gra- the character work was solid there's some slip ups here or there mainly <laughs> in the exposition department right um but overall it was like a, a quite a good movie or at least a, a pretty decent movie um but as a sequel <laughs> it's not a good sequel (laughs) right it's it's weird like (laughs) like everything about it's great except its connection to 2001 right well you need the setup of 2001 you need the previously on for this movie to exist and work and like psycho 2 maybe it shouldn't exist right but it's it's kind of good that it does you you kind (laughs) of called it honestly that's a really good comparison but enough about what we think what do you think dear listener let us know if you brave 2010 the year we make contact and write us at holduppodcast at gmail.com or you can write us about anything else any other movies you think we should watch or just to say how do you do also in addition to that you can visit us at our website holduppodcast.com there you will find links to all of our social media pages our twitter page our instagram page our facebook page our Dave Bowman alien page, whatever you want to visit. And until next time, my God, it's full of stars.